In one of the most moving scenes of Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, recently paroled, is welcomed into the home of a bishop. He was given food and shelter, and yet he steals. He steals silver from the bishop. And when the law catches up to him, uh, the bishop covers for him, explaining that he had meant to give the silver along with the two candlesticks, the, the best he had to offer. Now, it's, it's a bit concerning uh, that the bishop isn't perfectly honest, um, but we can appreciate his larger purpose, right? We, we can appreciate his larger goal of being generous and gracious to a rebel in need of redemption. Now, Valjean, as the story goes on, we see that he is uh, forever changed by this encounter with the bishop. And, and it's hard to say whose actions are more surprising in this scene. Valjean for stealing from the bishop in the first place, or the bishop's graciousness and, and generosity towards Valjean after the theft. In either case, we can see something similar in our study of 2 Kings, chapters 14 through 17 this morning. We see king after king Rebel against a good and generous God. A God who has welcomed them into His land. Given them a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they continue to rebel. But our God still holds out the hope of redemption to His people. Even after they have trampled on His kindness. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles. To turn to 2 Kings Chapter 14, that's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning uh, on page 320. We're going to look at chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. And we're going to be flipping back and forth together this morning. So if you need to do some finger exercises to get your fingers ready to move back and forth, feel free to do that. As you begin your finger exercises, let's just remember what First and Second Kings as a book are about. Uh, initially, they were one work known as the Book of Kings. Uh, they continue the chronicle that began in First and Second Samuel with the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. Remember in Second Samuel chapter 7 that God promised David a son from his line would be the promised Messiah. That he'd sit on his throne. He'd sit on that throne forever. And uh, Kings shifts our attention from David to his sons. All the while leading us to ask a question. Is, is this the one? Is this the promised son that we're to be expecting, waiting for? And as the book progresses, we move from David to Solomon and from Solomon to division, to decline, and to descent into the ruling age of the exile. In our study, in the book, we've already seen the kingdom's division into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And this morning, in 2 Kings chapters 14 to 17, we especially see the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the bulletin, you should find a handout, an additional handout with inserts for notes from the sermon. You'll find an outline of biblical history, a little arrow kind of showing you where we are in 2 Kings 17, a chart of the kings of Israel and Judah, and some high-level notes on the book of Kings, and a sermon outline. And hopefully that, especially the sermon outline, will help you follow along. Chapters 14, 15, 16 lead up to Israel's defeat and dispossession by Assyria. But these chapters do so in a peculiar way. Though in the main we see the northern kingdom's defeat and dispossession, the author implicates the southern kingdom and therefore foreshadows the southern kingdom's eventual defeat and dispossession too. In one sense, we could say that the message of these chapters is that rebellion is rejection of God. Rebellion is rejection of God. If you reject God, you can expect that God will reject you. Rebellion reaps what it sows. The northern kingdom receives the promised reward for its disobedience, sin, and rejection of God. And this reminds us that as a whole, the book of Kings reveals that God's judgment on Israel was righteous. Just as Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands and were exiled from the Garden of Eden, so Israel and her kings disobeyed God's commands and were likewise exiled from the promised land of Canaan. The northern kingdom rejects God, and God rejects the northern kingdom. 
But, and that's a big but, but God does not reject His promises to His people. And so, we have hope. Why look at these four chapters together? Well, the author has just spent about 13 and a half chapters moving us through 60 years of Israel's history. About, but about halfway through chapter 14, the author, he, he picks up the pace and pushes us through the next 60 years of Israel's history in three and a half chapters. It's as though we're watching Israel's history on double speed now. As though, as we, as we thought about last week, rebellion is repetitive, it's redundant, it's time to move on to the conclusion of the matter. And picking up the pace, it has another effect too. It gives us the feel that Israel's decline and descent is something like an unstoppable runaway local, locomotive that's headed straight for destruction. And we're going to study these four chapters under four headings. The root of our rebellion, because in Israel's rebellion, in Judah's rebellion, we can see something of our own. So the root of our rebellion, the fruit of our rebellion, the consequences of our rebellion, and the only hope of rebels. So these four points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. We're going to begin with chapter 14 with the root of our rebellion. And as we, as we do, as we begin the chapter, our attention is predominantly focused on the south, the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom uh, makes an appearance when the southern king Amaziah reveals his pride, which is the soil out of which all rebellion grows. Pride is the soil out of which all rebellion grows. So let's look at the root of our rebellion. Follow along as I read 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Yet... Not like his father David. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down the servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sins. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by storm and called it Jokthiel, which is its name to this day. Well, we see here that at first, Amaziah's reign, it begins to get off to a good start, a great start even. In verse 3, we're told that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. In the book of Kings, that, that typically means that he did not personally go and worship idols. Still, while Amaziah is counted as a good king with this commendation, did you notice that his reign it receives an immediate qualification? He did what was right, but not like David. In other words, he's not the promised son of David that we're looking for. Amaziah is not the Messiah, and we're told why. Verse 4, you see it there? But the high places were not removed. Amaziah allowed for false worship, for unauthorized worship, to continue on in Judah. Rather than leading his people out of syncretism in his kingdom, he allowed them to continue on in their sin of worshiping Yahweh as they pleased, rather than obeying the pattern of which God gave them in His law. He permitted the kind of picking and choosing of how you want to worship God rather than humbly submitting to God's form of worship. I wonder if you can actually see the pride in this. The creature exalts himself above the Creator when the creature disregards the Creator's commands for worship. When we allow our preferences rather than God's positive commands to determine our worship, we are pridefully exalting ourselves above God. This pride is the root of rebellion. And Amaziah allows this prideful worship to continue unopposed. Amaziah receives two additional commendations. In verses 5 and 6, we're told that he, he discharged his duty with respect to the law and brought lawbreakers, murderers, to justice. But 
He did not overstep his bounds. It takes restraint to go as far as the law says and no further. Amaziah was also victorious over the Edomites. His victories are they're recorded in the Valley of Salt and Selah. Were, they were a source of personal pride for Amaziah. In fact, he felt so good about his military strength that he challenged Jehoash, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, to battle in verse 8. You can see that there. Jehoash, the king of the, of the north, he puts Amaziah in his place. In verses 8 to 10, they, they contain a kind of trash-talking in the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, Jehoash calls himself a cedar, and he calls Amaziah a thistle. Uh, Jehoash basically says, look, little man, you've got a Napoleonic complex here. Um, you're this small, little, annoying thistle just stuck in a man's sock, and I'm a big, tall cedar tree, and I'm going to crush you. And, and that's what's going on here, so don't come looking for a fight. Now, what's most interesting about this trash-talking is just how Jehoash, the northern kingdom, points out the heart condition of the southern king. Take a look at verse 10. You have indeed struck down Edom. Like, good for you. Okay, good job. You struck down Edom. But notice this next line. Your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory and stay at home. So do you see what the, the northern king says? It, it, even in this trash talking, there is an evaluation of Amaziah's heart. Your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory. Amaziah was indeed pridefully exalting himself. And he was discontent with the level of glory that the Lord God had graciously given him. And this is the root of all rebellion. It's precisely what led Adam to rebel against God in Genesis 3, isn't it? Adam was not content with the glory of being made in God's image. He was not content with the glory of being the crown of creation and God's representative on earth. He exalted himself in his heart. He sought to take the throne of God. He sought to take the throne of the king. And what happened as a result of his pride and subsequent sin? He became enslaved to sin he was cast out of the Garden of Eden, and he ushered in a curse upon all creation. As his sons and daughters, we all bear in our bodies and bones the proclivity toward pride and exaltation. Just as Adam's prideful rebellion was soundly defeated in the Garden, so Jehoash soundly defeated Amaziah, king of Judah. The opening words of verse 11 are worth meditating on. Here are those opening words. But Amaziah would not listen. That's the nature of pride. Why listen when you know it all? Why listen when you're the one on the throne? Why listen when you're the greatest and most powerful? Because you don't know it all. Because you're not on the throne. Because you're not the greatest and most powerful. Because you're a creature not the Creator, because you're a servant, not the King. Amaziah's pride and his failure to listen was a total disaster. The two kings and kingdoms went to war. The king of Israel swooped down into Jerusalem. He captured Amaziah. He broke down the wall of the city. He seized all of the gold and silver and all of the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. He took everything. He took the king's pride and he took his plunder. That's what the essence of verses 11 to 14 are communicating. We're given two death notices or obituaries that conclude the chapter, chapter 14. They're obituaries of these two kings who fought and warred with each other. That's what verses 15 to 22 cover. Amaziah's pride is typical not just of Judah's rebellion or Israel's rebellion, but of all mankind's rebellion. What we see here is the lifting up, up of one's heart, the discontent with one's station, or refusing to hear is what we've all been guilty of toward others and toward God. Even if we have not verbally proclaimed our pride and prowess like Amaziah, we have all quietly exalted ourselves over others. We've looked down upon others, thought that we're better than others, We've 
Even if we've not announced our discontent with our station and glory like Amaziah, we've no doubt asked God or others why we don't have that position or that position. Why so-and-so has that position? Like, they're not really qualified for that. I could really do that job better. We've all done that kind of thing in our hearts. We've all wanted a position of prominence. And as, as much as we wish it weren't true, we've all refused the good and wise counsel of others who know more and who know better than we do. Amaziah's pride is like a mirror to our souls. Like Adam's rebellion, our rebellion against God grows out of pride. This is the truth that our rebellion produces the same fruit that Amaziah, Israel, and Judah all produced. And this is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. The fruit of our rebellion. 2 Kings chapters 14 to 17 expose the fruit of our rebellion. We're not going to walk, walk through these chapters chronologically. Rather, we're going to walk through them thematically. We're going to identify the various kinds, the different kinds of fruit that grows out of rebellious hearts. That's evidenced in our world. And the first one is conflict and conspiracy. If you know the very beginning of the Bible, then you know, you'll know that some of the first fruit growing out, growing out of Adam's rebellion was conflict with Eve. Conflict within that first family. Rebellion and sin brings about conflict with others. In fact, the first 22 verses of chapter 14, we considered a conflict between the kings of Judah and Israel. Do you want to know why there are wars in our world? They are the fruit of our rebellion against God. And these chapters, they contain wars and they contain other forms of conflict too. Conspiracy and murder crops up four times in these chapters. So in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 19, we're told that Amaziah was put to death because of a conspiracy that arose against him. Take a look at verses 19 to 21 of chapter 14. Follow along if you're there. And they made a conspiracy against him, that's Amaziah, in Jerusalem. And he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. What an interesting contrast, right? We want him instead of his father. And flip ahead to, to chapter 15. Take a look at verse 10. Chapter 15, verse 10. Here we're now in the northern kingdom, and, and Zechariah is reigning on the throne. And, and this is what 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 10 says. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Iblim and put him to death and reigned in his place. In this era, there's a constant seeking after the throne. Now, skip down to verse 25 of chapter 15. Once again, we're in the northern kingdom of Israel when Pekahiah is reigning as king. This is what we read in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 25. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, with Argob and Aria, he put him to death and reigned in his place. Now move down just a few verses. Pekah orchestrated a conspiracy against Pekahiah, but notice what happens to him. In 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 30, the conspirator gets conspired against. Verse 30, Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Pekah reaped what he himself sowed. During these years, there is infighting between the kings and infighting inside the kingdoms themselves. These conflicts and conspiracies are the fruit of rebellion. Many people think it was Abraham Lincoln uh, who said, a house divided against itself cannot stand, but it was actually Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 25. God's people will not last long when conflicts rage. Not only are there conflicts and conspiracies, the fruit of rebellion, but so is compromise. And this compromise is all over the place. We saw it first in the reign of Amaziah when he allowed unauthorized worship to remain in his kingdom. That's a kind of indirect compromise, but it is compromise nonetheless. In fact, generally speaking, the, the southern kingdoms, the southern kings are guilty of, of a kind of indirect compromise, and the northern kings are guilty of a kind of direct compromise. Just uh, look at those two paths. Let's look at those. Beginning with the northern kings. 
Uh, consider first the reign of Jeroboam II. So turn, turn back to chapter 14 now and verse 23. Uh, Jeroboam's reign, it's briefly recorded in verses 23 to 29. But just, just read verses 23 and 24 now. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So this is Jeroboam the second now. And he was just like his namesake. The very first Jeroboam who permitted false worship in his kingdom. He permitted and made golden calves and created worship centers in Bethel and Dan. The same is true of Zechariah in chapter 15, verse 9. Um, Shalom only reigns a month, but we can only guess that his uh, kingdom, things in his kingdom were not different, that different in a month's time. Uh, Menahem receives the same condemnation of direct compromise in chapter 15, verse 18. We're told the same thing about Pekahiah in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 24. And Pekah in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 28. And Hosea in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 2. All of the northern kings directly compromise Yahweh's religion. This is monotonous. It's redundant. It's frankly boring. But that's part of the author's point. Rebellion is boring. All of the northern kings directly compromise Yahweh's religion. None of them is particularly creative. They're all just compromisers. Do something different for a change. Try obedience to Yahweh. But what about the southern kingdom? Throughout the course of the book of Kings, the southern kings are, are only slightly better. Uh, throughout the course of this book, uh, we get sometimes a positive evaluation of a southern king, but it's often followed by an immediate qualification. We've already looked at Amaziah. Following him was his son Azariah. Uh, Azariah who's also known as Uzziah in the scriptures. He's that Uzziah in, in, uh, in Isaiah. Anyways, his snapshot is given there in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. But let's just focus in on his evaluation. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And watch for his com commendation, but immediate qualification. Verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, Yahweh, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Again, this is a, a kind of indirect compromise. While on the one hand, he personally did not give himself to worship at the high places. On the other hand, like his father, he still compromised and allowed false worship in his kingdom. And if you allow your eyes to drift down just one verse, you'll see that the author drops in the fact that the Lord afflicted Azariah with leprosy. The author doesn't give us the backstory, which you can find out about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verses 21 to 23. But by, by dropping in this historical fact here, the author is giving us a hint about what the Lord thinks of Azariah's rule, his reign, his devotion, or lack thereof. The Lord is not pleased with the compromised worship. He wants undivided devotion. And to make matters worse, his son Jotham does the same thing in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 32 to 38. But the real surprise, and there is a surprise in our text, the real surprise comes when a king of Judah is not given this evaluation. Ahaz is not guilty of indirect compromise, but of direct compromise. So skip over to chapter 16. Uh, Ahaz is given one of the longer accounts, but for now let's just read verses 2 to 4. Take a look at what we find out about Ahaz. He's a king in the southern kingdom. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. 
So here it is, the kings of Judah, who are generally speaking not as bad as the kings of Israel. Here is a king of Judah who has become like the kings of Israel. And notice the descent in the passage. There is a descent from indirect compromise to direct compromise and outright paganism. Ahaz was no better than the kings of Israel. And this is an implicit condemnation of the kings of Israel, isn't it? He's no better than the kings of Israel. Well, we know that the kings of Israel are not good either. This is just not good altogether. Ahaz is guilty of another facet of rebellion or fruit of rebellion. Conformity to the surrounding nations and false confidence. Our loyalty will show itself in where we place our hope in times of trouble. In 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 to 20, we see that when Ahaz and Judah are threatened by the northern kingdom and Syria, Ahaz appeals to the king of Assyria. He puts his confidence in Assyria when he should have put his confidence in Yahweh, in God. In fact, in Isaiah 7, the prophet Isaiah appealed to Ahaz to place his confidence in God. But he refused. The prophet Isaiah said, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. The Lord says, ask me for a sign. And they say, oh no, I can't do that. I can't test the Lord. But the Lord is telling you to ask him for a sign. So you should do what the Lord says. But he doesn't. And that's his pride. Instead, he goes to Assyria and he trusts in Assyria for protection. But not only does Ahaz place his confidence in Assyria for protection, but he also builds an altar like the one he saw in Assyria. In other words, he conforms Judah's worship to the worship of a foreign nation. This conformity and false confidence didn't happen only in the south. It also happened in the north. There's a, a lot of political upheaval in these years, in this period of time, and several kings of the northern kingdom end up forming alliances with foreign nations and thereby placing their confidence in foreign kings instead of in Yahweh. Menahem, whose account read of in chapter 15, verses uh, 17 to 22, he trusted in money. He gave Pul, the king of Assyria, uh, a thousand talents of, of silver so that he might help him confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem's son, uh, Pekahiah, continued to pay tribute to Assyria during his two-year reign. And Hosea, whose account we find in chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, we learn that he too paid tribute to the king of Assyria. And then he double-crossed the king of Assyria. And so he sought the help of So, the king of Egypt. Can you believe it? Now the people of Israel are trusting in Egypt, the nation that had once enslaved them. Have they really returned to trusting in Egypt? Shouldn't they have trusted in Yahweh, their deliverer from Egypt? Things were not supposed to be like this for Israel and Judah. They were not supposed to be a nation under the thumb of other nations or trusting in other nations. But this is the fruit of their rebellion against the God who could protect them. The fruit of rebellion is seen in conflict, conspiracy, compromise, conformity, and it's also seen in cruelty. Menahem, who I just mentioned, and whose account we find in chapter 15, verses 17 to 22, not only trusted in money and levied heavy taxes upon those under his leadership to retain his throne, but he also dealt cruelly with those who rebuffed his leadership. Take a look at verse 16 of chapter 15. At that time, Menahem sacked Tifsa and all who were in it and in its territories from Tirzah on, because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. Cruelty. He had conquered the city, but there was no need for this. It was especially cruel. But cruelty is the sad consequence of rebellion and sin. Remember pride, rebellion's root. Menahem couldn't stand to have his leadership rebuffed. It wounded his pride, and he made them pay. Friends, as we look over the sad state of affairs 
in Israel and Judah, depicted here in 2 Kings chapters 14 to 17. Can you not see some of the same fruit of rebellion in our world today? Is there not immense conflict in our world? Our world is afflicted with wars, even right now. The same fruit of rebellion that we see here in 2 Kings chapters 14 to 17 still emerges. There are coups and there are conspiracies. Principles of righteousness are compromised. The world encourages its inhabitants to be conformed to its image, to think its thoughts, to embrace its values, to worship at its altars. Toys are being made to tell us that there's no difference between boys and girls, between men and women. But our God has told us that there is a profound and unchangeable created difference. And yet, some churches who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are adopting the world's views over and against our God's views. Against truth, really. They are pleasing man and not God. There is compromise among those who call themselves Christians. We can point the finger out there. But what about in here? Do we have compromise in our own hearts? Are we trusting in money or position or power? Is our pride ever offended? Do we ever lash out in anger? Sadly, there's cruelty in our world. Children are still being ripped from their mother's wombs. Fearful women are being preyed upon. Angry bullies still roam the hallways of schools and homes. This is the fruit of rebellion. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. Especially among the people of God. Things were supposed to be different among God's people. They were supposed to be a kingdom ruled by love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Israel and Judah were supposed to be one nation under God. And they were supposed to be a light shining in the midst of a dark and rebellious world. They were supposed to show the nations the way of Yahweh. Now, admittedly, we've been bouncing back and forth between the northern and southern kingdoms. And we've been seeing that the fruit of rebellion is emerging in both kingdoms. That is actually part of the author's point, is the fruit. This fruit is present in both kingdoms. And if it is present in both kingdoms, then we can only expect both kingdoms to fall. God will not let sin go unpunished forever. And He promised His people that should they continue on in their impenitence, idolatry, and sin, rebellion against His commands, that He would remove them from the good land that He gave them. We find... That's what we find with respect to the northern kingdom of Israel in chapter 17. So let's turn now and consider our third point. The consequence of our rebellion. The consequence of our rebellion is exile. In verse 5 of chapter 17, we're told that the king of Assyria invaded the land of Israel. And of course this happened just after Israel turned to Egypt. And that the king of Assyria, he besieged the capital city of Samaria for three years. And let's pick up reading in verse 6 of chapter 17. As we read what happens, be sure to look for the why. Why does this happen? Here we go. 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning there in verse 6. We're going to read chapter, verse 18. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 6 to 18. In the ninth year of Hosea... The king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from the watchtower to the fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned 
Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves metal images of two calves And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do the evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Israel is exiled to the eastern region of the Assyrian Empire. People are scattered to various portions. What's interesting about this text is that the author does not identify the reason for this as a political one. He could have told us that, look, the king of Israel, Hosea, he he stopped paying tribute to to Assyria and, and tried to form an alliance with Egypt in order to resist Assyria. And that this is why Assyria came down hard on Israel and exiled its people. It's kind of the political reason. The author doesn't give us that as the reason. He gave us another reason, didn't he? It's there in verse 7. The people of Israel were exiled. They were driven from their land and resettled in another one because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And verses 9 to 23, right, it lists all those forms of rebellion and sin. It's kind of weighty to take in. Israel feared other gods, verse 7, and walked in the customs of the nations of Canaan, verse 8. In other words, they re-Canaanized Canaan themselves. They drove out the nations. And they said, we want them back. And so they re-Canaanized Canaan. Israel tried to sin in secret, verse 9. And this is foolish because the sovereign God of the earth, he sees all things. They went after false idols and became false Verse 15, isn't that a striking phrase? They went after false idols and became false. That's a consequence of rebellion. You become like the things you worship. Empty and false and worthless and useless. I had a sad conversation with an unbelieving neighbor the other day. He was expressing to me the emptiness he felt. He had reflected on his career and wondered if he spent decades of his life doing nothing to show for it. Buried himself in his job. But not in the service of the Lord. And he feels empty. He had been chasing after the wind. He had nothing to show for it. Israel, they burned their children. They used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil. Verse 17. These verses chronicle 200 years of rebellion. Think of the Lord's patience in enduring that. This rebellion aroused the Lord's anger. And he removed Israel out of his sight. Verse 18. Yes, yes, Assyria removed Israel. But the Lord is sovereignly working through Assyria. The consequence of Israel's rebellion was exile. And just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden for their sin, so we see But the people of Israel were cast out of their garden-like land. The end of 17, chapter 17, verse 23, says it poignantly. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Not only were large portions of Israel's population removed from the land, but Assyria also moved people into the land. People from their own nation and other subjugated nations into Canaan. That's part of what we find uh, in verses 24 through the end of the chapter, of chapter 17. Assyria kind of resettles the land by allowing a few Israelites to stay, but also by moving in different people from neighboring nations. 
This means that an, uh, an ethnically, socially, politically, and religiously diverse population remains. And one of the goals of this policy is to kind of dilute forms of nationalistic or religious tendencies in order to keep revolts from growing up. And one of the fascinating things that takes place is that these new next-door neighbors, they did not know Yahweh. The writer of Kings tells us that Yahweh sent lions to devour the disobedient people living in the formerly northern kingdom. He sent lions. The writer of Kings tells us uh, that the king of Assyria hears about this, hears the complaints, and so he sends a priest of Yahweh to teach the people of the land how they're to worship Yahweh. But what we discover is that the same syncretistic worship that took place before in the land continues on in the land. They're worshiping Yahweh now. Not really. Not really. Remember the prophet Elijah? Remember that conversation he had on Mount Carmel? They were not holy. The people of Israel were not wholly devoted to Yahweh. I mean, Elijah, they charged the people of having one foot in Yahwehism and one foot in Baalism. But no one can serve two masters. Yahweh won't allow it. Religion that is Yahweh plus another God is not acceptable to Yahweh. This physical exile, however, is not the worst consequence of our rebellion. The removal from their homeland was not the worst consequence of Israel's rebellion. As bad as that is, the greatest consequence of rebellion is being removed from God's presence. Look at the first part of 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 18 again. You see what the writer says? He says in verse 18, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. Now skip down to verse 20. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. Now skip down to verse 23. The people of Israel walked in the sins, in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servant the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Yahweh sees all these things. So when the writer says that the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, he's not simply talking about a geographic location, but a personal relation. Yahweh promised in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that he would punish the sins of his rebellious people. And that day has come for the northern kingdom. Judgment falls upon, the sinner, on, upon sinners. And this temporal judgment, this temporal judgment, this judgment in time and in space, is typical, points forward to, it foreshadows the eternal exile that comes to those who rebel against the living God. This earthly judgment foreshadows an eternal judgment. All those who rebel against the living God, who transgress His law, who sin against Him, deserve to face His just and eternal judgment. And so be cast out of His loving presence for all eternity. This is the final consequence for our rebellion. We not only deserve to die physically, but spiritually speaking, we deserve to die eternally. For we have sinned against the eternal God. We do not simply have bodies. We also have eternal souls. And if eternal exile from God's loving presence is what is justly due to our sin, and it is, then what hope do we have? We have, we have only one hope. Our only hope is in the God of grace and mercy. And that's what we turn to think about in our final point. The only hope of rebels. If we're being honest about the text, and especially 2 Kings chapter 17, it's an incredibly difficult section of Scripture to read. The author doesn't simply remind us that Israel has sinned, but he reminds us that Israel has sinned in the face of God's grace. Right? In verse 7 we read, and this, that is their exile, this exile occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who what? Who redeemed them. Right? Who, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from out from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Israel sinned against the God who rescued them from slavery. They rejected the God who redeemed them. They were bound as servants in another land and God rescued them from it. And now due to their sin, they're back in a foreign land under a foreign king, subjects of him. In their rebellion, they rejected God's redemption. Not only did the people of Israel rebel against Yahweh and His grace, but they also rejected His prophets. Right? In verse 13, we're told that in His grace and mercy, in an effort to rescue Israel from the punishment that was coming because of their sin, the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. The God of grace used every means at His disposal to warn Israel the disaster that was coming upon them. But, verse 14, they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And chapter 17, it concludes with a reminder or a rehearsal of the covenant, stretching from verses 39, 35 to 39. The covenant is, is re-summarized. And take particular note of verses 38 and 39. Read, read um, 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 38 and 39. And you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and He will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Our hope. Our only hope as rebels against the eternal and living God is that this God of grace does not change. Our hope, our only hope, is that this God who delivers His people out from oppression, who sends prophet after prophet, who sends deliverer after deliverer does not change. Our hope, our only hope, is that though the northern kingdom rejected God and so suffered the rejection of exile, that God does not reject His promises to His people. Our hope, our only hope, is that this God, who promised to Abraham that He would have a son who would be a blessing to the nations, that this God does not change, that He keeps His promises. Our hope, our only hope, is that this God, who promised Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that a ruler from his tribe would come and that he would receive the obedience of the peoples of all the earth that he would keep his promise because he does not change our hope our only hope is that this God who promised Israel in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet like Moses would come and that God's people would listen to him he would keep his promise because he does not change our only hope is the God who promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his descendants would reign on his throne for all eternity. He would keep his promise because he does not change. And did you see the note of hope in chapter 17, verse 18? Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 18. See if you can spot the hope in here. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Do you see the hope in that verse? It's glorious. Only Judah was left. And that's all. That's all that our unchanging God needs to bring a son of Abraham. To bring a prophet like Moses. To bring a son of David to the throne. To bring a king unlike any king that Israel or Judah had ever seen. And this, this is what our unchanging God has done in Jesus Christ. He has sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that Adam, that Israel, that Judah, that you and I have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God's covenant and law. But here's the startling thing about Jesus. For the sin of His people, for our disobedience, Jesus was rejected by God the Father on the cross. The prophet Isaiah tells us that He was despised and rejected by men. 
He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne the griefs of his people and carried their sorrows. And yet, he was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And he was cut off. Jesus was exiled from the land of the living. For our rejection of God, Jesus was rejected for God's people. That's why he cried on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three days after his God-forsaken death, God the Father raised Jesus Christ in the grave, proving to us all that He is our only hope of salvation from eternal exile, from God's loving presence. Friend, I, I wonder if the God of grace is calling out to you today. Is He, by 2 Kings chapters 14 to 17, warning you not to continue on in your sin and rebellion? Do not be stubborn. Do not be proud. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if, if they did not escape from those who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. So friend, forsake your pride and humble yourself before your Creator. Give your life an honest examination. You can see the fruit of rebellion and rejection of God in your life. Consider the consequence of eternal exile from God's presence. But finally, turn from your sins and believe that there is everlasting hope, forgiveness, and grace in Jesus Christ alone. There is redemption, even for rebels like you and me. Just as Jean Valjean, just as he was a rebel in need of redemption, was changed by the grace and generosity of the bishop, so in a much more profound way, we ought to be forever changed by the grace and generosity of our God. Consider God's kindness in redeeming us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made peace by the blood of His cross. Consider God's love in freeing us from slavery to sin. Consider God's compassion in sending messenger after messenger to tell us of this good news and remind us when we rebel that there's forgiveness that Jesus Christ may be feared. Our only hope is in our God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have this hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.